All right, I'm here with Daniel this week. We're going to do a mailbag pod because there's no actual real football going on. Daniel, how's it going? Uh, it's going. Had better weeks, but here we yep. are. One thing, one thing that, that did that did make me smile. And this is obviously nothing. Well, not obviously because you don't know what I'm about to say. <laughs> I have nothing to do whatsoever with United. But my best mate is a Sunderland fan. And, okay. Um, today, this week, he got announced as the director of Sunderland. Yeah. Uh. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're all still harboring hopes of playing for our clubs, but if we don't, then I guess, yeah, this is sort of the next best thing. I never thought I would buzz off fucking Sunderland, particularly not when I stood in that away in, in 2012. But uh, yeah, that gave me, yeah. that gave me, there's a, there's a Yiddish word, nachas, that means, it means joy, pleasure, usually from one's children or grandchildren, but also for one people is close to a general pleasure from things so yeah that gave me that gave me some nothing so i was i was yeah that was good good yeah good well we're gonna get to why it was a crappy week uh, a bit later in the pod i think we'll discuss some world events we never really shy away from geopolitics on this show but it is a football show so we'll try and uh, we'll try and get a balance here so we're gonna do mailbag pod obviously a lot of the questions are about the the news we had yesterday that the Qatar bid from Sheikh Jassim has been withdrawn and Ineos are on the verge of buying 25% of the club. So most of the question is about that. I'll get to those and then we can have a chat about what it all means. So Stretford Ender Rising says, what do you think of Ineos' bid? What does it look like in terms of the end goal and how is the plan to get there? So let's let's lay the facts out as we understand them it looks like Ineos have secured 25% of the club and it's some kind of mix probably an equal balance of a and b shares the b shares are the ones with all the voting rights the a shares are the ones with one tenth of the voting rights the b shares are all owned by the glazers the a shares are on the public market the glazers own about 69% of the club and have 96% of the voting rights so all the a shareholders which is like 31% of the club on the New York Stock Exchange, complained that they weren't going to get the same deal as the Glazers were because the price was going to be different because the public price is about 19 and it looks like Ineos are paying about $35 a share. So there you go. There's the facts. So it looks like they've struck a compromise and Ratcliffe and Ineos will buy about 25% of the club. What are your thoughts? But does that... But- um, I mean, I, I don't have much to say on the analysis of who owns what. That's obviously much more your department than mine. But are we not saying also that Ineos are going to run the football operations? Well, it seems to be, yeah. I mean, I don't know that we've seen the... I don't know that we've seen the details of the contract and exactly how that would work itself out. But if you buy 25% of, the, of any kind of entity, you would typically expect board seats. I think that's fair. And if they've come to some kind of con- handshake deal or agreement that Ineos will run those football operations that that is kind of really interesting and and what Stratford Ender Rising's question gets to is like how they get to 100% which I, I I'm absolutely certain will be the case because if you look at how Ineos has been built over the years they they bought like the assets of other petrochemical companies that they didn't want and then took them private in every single case. And so Ineos is this mega conglomerate of all these companies, like kind of managed on this kind of federal system where you have a managing director of each of the companies, but they're under a big group. So I, I would be shocked 
if there is not a plan to get to full ownership and delist Manchester United. And then this thing about the football operations is kind of interesting because that's that's kind of weird, but that's kind of just management. And given the Glazers will still have majority voting rights, that feels like some kind of either contract clause or handshake. So, because uh, I was wondering if maybe it was going like this because the Glazers want to continue milking United for a bit of cash. So perhaps it, you know, it starts at twenty five percent, and we whatever happen, things happen, and they get to somewhere. But I wondered if maybe yeah. they wouldn't quite get to a hundred because I felt like the Glazers continuing to make money from United was probably a deal breaker for Cater, but wasn't a deal breaker for Ratcliffe. But obviously the Glazers retaining say in ownership would be a problem for both. But I can't imagine yeah. that Rack- Ratcliffe's not, he's not buying 25% to have 25%. He's buying 25% no, he's to run, to run United. And then I remember we said when we talked about this a while ago, quite a long time ago now that the question that we actually really wanted answering is what happens when you die? In in the instance of Ratcliffe owning United, what happens when you die? Yeah. Uh, and uh, completely unknown. Does he have kids? I don't even know what the succession plan is within Ineos. I mean, he's 70, so it's a live question, isn't it? So, I mean, but on the on the pathway to 100%, I'm, I'm sure that there will be some contracts and t- typically in private equity deals like this, there'll be put, clauses which is about the selling party having the opportunity to claw back in certain circumstances and call which is the buying party having the option to take more equity for capital and so those clauses will be in there i'm sure and so it won't just be on a handshake that ratcliffe is buying the glazers out but it'll be guaranteed ratchets on the price depending on I guess the public price of United or the revenue or some kind of clauses in there. I would be really surprised, though, that dividends will be paid after now because Ratcliffe has been like very public that he doesn't think dividends should be paid on this kind of asset. He does pay himself dividends on Ineos. He paid himself over £500 million worth of dividends last year, which is nice. (laughs) Nice if you can get it, right? Uh, I'd be really surprised if he pays himself any dividends. So I think from this point, the Glazers are not milking for dividends. Yeah, And Ratcliffe, on a, he doesn't need £5 million of dividends each year because he's spending $1.3 to $1.5 billion on on a quarter of the club. We'll find out exactly what the price is. Uh, so he doesn't need the dividends. I'd be really surprised if they are. But the, the Glazers, I think, want to guarantee that if their belief that United's value is going to skyrocket because of whatever-the-fuck reasons... Uh, it comes true that they get to benefit from it, or they don't get to look stupid because they've sold it for too little. So, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've said before, I, I don't really know what that pathway is. Maybe they're more genius than I am, but I don't see mega amounts of new revenue coming into United in the next three years, which appears to be the timeline. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that they care at all about looking stupid. They care a lot about missing out on potential readies. I guess the thing, the only things that United suddenly get really good without them, or there's some kind of Premier League streaming situation that feels like the only. I mean, there is more Champions League money coming, um, but it doesn't feel it's incremental. Yeah, 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 it doesn't feel like it's enough. But I guess they want to try and future-proof themselves if they can. So even if we ends up that we're not talking about any more money, they tried to. Fleecy for more money. Never let it be said that they I didn't mean, try. I mean, I think so. Morton McBrenner says, to harp on regarding the sale, would you expect there to be a clear structured timeline 
where depending on variables X, stake will be a variable time Y for a given price with an end date for the glazed sellout. Yes, I would expect that. Or could SJR end up in another long saga for full control? I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if it turns out like Arsenal. If you remember Osimov, uh, Osimov, Asimov? No, he's a science fiction writer. What the hell was the guy called who then Usmanov. went to Everton? Alisher Usmanov. <laughs> and Kronky were in this long sort of battle for control of Arsenal because they didn't have those kind of agreements. They just they bought out a lot of private stakeholders in Arsenal over the years and then they had this battle. I'd be really surprised if either the Glazers or or Ratcliffe are leaving them. I, I, can't, I just can't believe that Ratcliffe would do that. So I think there will be a timeline for full buyout. Tarek Amir uh, says sorry, he's before, just to finish on that, just, just to finish yeah. on that, just before we finish talking about Arsenal suits, this is as good a time as any to remind everyone. I try and do this as often as possible that when Mikel Arteta was Arsenal captain and in charge of all the players' fines, at the end of the season, he took some of the money and spent it on a watch for Ivan Gazidis, who was running the club at the Lovely. time. So just yeah. every time, <laughs> if ever you get to thinking that Mikel Arteta. It's not a sniveling little little trouser wearer who loves the taste of boot. <laughs> he, he does. Never, never that, let that I mean, be forgotten. Imagine, <laughs> what does that take? What, the, what does that take? The, the, the gumption to do that. Yeah, to go yeah, and spend that money on that. Unbelievable. Most clubs give that money away to their foundation. <laughs> God, Arteta. You, but you just can tell, can't you, by looking at him? Arteta. That he was like, te- yeah. teacher's pet, yeah. With his, uh, yeah. with his little hair and his little trouser. No, man. I mean, it's amazing. His balls dropped, isn't it, with those trousers? They're so fucking tight. <laughs> so. Tarek Amir, friend of the pod, says, does this sequence of events accurately sum up the flag twerkers in the no community at the moment? It's got a bunch of uh, Simpsons. Uh, it's is Homer. Uh, flying into the cliff on a skateboard. You'll know the meme. Yeah, I, I have to say, I find the uh, reaction of f- flag-shagging Twitter pretty odd. There's a whole bunch of blue ticks with really long posts. People you'll know who are carpetbaggers and uh, um, monetizing the audience, shall we say, who uh, are writing these long diatribes about the death of United. And I'm just like, I don't. I, I mean, I know people want rid of the glaciers, Imagine, put it this way, if a year ago it'd been announced that Ratcliffe is buying a quarter of the club with a pathway to buying the full club, we'd all be fucking delighted, wouldn't we? It's just that and the oil money was dangled there. Right, and therefore we would have all taken what looks like it's about to happen a year ago, before Qatar, right? Yeah. Therefore, if it's about to happen and you're not happy, then it's specifically because you wanted Qatar. Yeah. I think at that point it's time to sit down and be honest about why people who would have taken this and been happy about it a year ago are so wanting to have Qatar now because Jim Ratcliffe is a rich man. All United need is to be able to spend their own money. So yeah. what, what is it really specifically about Qatar? Is it that you f- they feel if United are owned by a nation state, it makes us too big to fail? I don't, I don't see the benefits. Uh, I mean, I've said this before, given the, the way the, especially the UEFA squad cost rules, FFP, updated FFP rules are written, there's not a lot of benefit now for nation states. So, like, 
Newcastle have seemed to have progressed faster than we thought, and they did spend a lot of money because they hadn't spent money before. So that and and they put in the extra that you're allowed, the small extra that you're allowed. For what it's worth, why why I was told for on now, Newcastle, I just, yeah. what I was told on Newcastle was that they're very they're being sticklers. They're doing absolutely everything by the book, so as to avoid future aggravation. And that is yeah, yeah. that's a perceived to be the what's what's thought in football and. I mean, the reason they're ahead of schedule also is because I think they've bought well. He's dickhead has managed well, has to be said. And it's now the case that there are more good footballers in the world than there have ever been before. And that means that it is possible for more clubs than ever before to get brilliant fucking footballers. Like previously, one reason you wouldn't have players like Alexander Isak and Bruno Gimaraish at Newcastle, and I think it's those two that have sort of elevated the level, players that they've got, who yeah. felt like were a class above the players you would expect them to be signing at that time. Except there was no competition for them, really, because everyone, there's so many good players around. It felt like Isak, I, I'm surprised no one else was in for him, because there aren't many good centre-forwards in the world or and good young ones, mm. but you can see why, just because other clubs have players who are as good as them in 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 those positions but they're also really good players and it just means that they're accessible in the same way if you look around if you like west ham have got kudus and uh, pakitar lovely lovely footballers and the reason they've got them is obviously because the premier league can outbid ajax everyone yeah can can outbid everyone but also because they're just there's loads more players of mohammed kudus's quality have been around now, never before. And I think people sort of just forget um, about that factor when they assess how these things happen. Yeah. I do, I do think the academy system that has been kind of copied across the world has, has played a part in that high, high level of, of footballer for sure. And, and data and scouting and stuff like that. So we have visibility into the Serbian third division in a way that we never did before. And we can compare across with quite a level of sophistication across leagues. So, and that academy system, by the way, is also being replicated into the women's game, which is why I think in the next 10 years, and especially in England, there will be a, a flood of really high quality players. But also- and the other thing is, as you, as you alluded to, of the top 20 most revenue generating clubs in the world, 18 are in, from the Premier League. The other two are Real Madrid and Barcelona. And, and but. So also, also, and actually that may not be quite correct because I think Bayern Munich and Paris Saint Germain in there. But anyway, it's a very but, high number. But look at the, the players 20. that Lons have got or Napoli or like, or Inter. There's still teams with, with really good players out, outside of those. And that, that explains why so many of them are playing in the Premier League. But I'm also, I think more, more people than ever before are playing football. There are more scouts than ever before who are looking for footballers, and there's so much money involved. It's much harder if you're good to not play football, a and b get seen by someone that can take you somewhere. And yeah, and I think I think those 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 are the main reasons why what what why it is. But yeah, I guess we had to be thankful that Americans still drop out of football when they hit college, because three hundred and some million people that would be. A- an insanely large market of high-quality footballers. Thankful or not thankful? I don't know. You pick. <laughs> like, no, the more... We wouldn't want American dominating football like uh, they do the Olympics. But, but yeah, that, that's why everyone's focused on that market because it's a huge... I mean, the, the level of interest in football in the States and especially the Premier League has really ballooned over the last 10 years. If you look at the NBC contract, it's the second biggest behind the 
Premier League, it's over a billion dollars. So it's really, and it's it's like ten times bigger than the uh, MLS Apple contract. But there's this huge level of interest now, um, and that may at some point convert into actual footballers as well as uh, eyeballs. But yeah, anyway, yeah, you're totally right. High level of footballers, loads of money in the Premier League. Um, has meant that Newcastle were able to sprint ahead of perhaps where we thought they would be. But to get back to the original question, I just don't think in United's case, we'll see whether this happens. So what, what Ratcliffe could do is say, I can inject equity, which the Glazers have never done. They'll con- he'll convert cash for equity or write off a loan or do an interest-free loan. And United will then be able to spend a little bit more above their FFP limit in the Premier League. It's 105 million over three years. The problem they'll have is how close they are to the UEFA. 90% this year, 80% next year, 70% the year before of revenues for squad costs. I mean, transfer fees, agents fees and wages. And United are quite close to that limit. So whether there's really a benefit, I don't know. It's And there definitely wouldn't have been much of a benefit to Qatar, except for could you make more money out of a brand new stadium, which won't happen under this current arrangement. Well, I think, yeah, the thing with Ratcliffe that we know we're getting, like, he's not buying this to make money. It's a vanity project. He's buying it because it's United. Yeah, for he, sure. He supports United. And, yeah, he tried to buy Chelsea or whatever. Not something I'd personally do if I was as rich as him. But it doesn't. he's buying United because he wants United, He wants to buy it because it's United, which means that United being good is something that he wants. And he's not he's not cuddly. He's not a nice guy, and it's incredible that he has become the wholesome option here. Yeah, yeah. Here we are, and with his ownership, if United buy the right, get the right people in the right positions, and there's no reason to think he would. We don't know if he'll do that less well or better than Cater would have done. Cater, he had he didn't do a particularly good job of it in Nice necessarily, but United is a different thing. PSG is more yeah. similar. And they haven't done a great job yeah. of that. I mean, they've won the French League a lot of times. Well done. But not with any art to it, really. Just, it's just yeah. having players, really. And it, so it, it's the best chart you can ever find. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Go look up wage budgets in League One. Cause I think, I think PSG's is over 700 million euros a year. And the next highest is like a hundred million euros a year. It's an incredible chart. So yes, there's, there's no, there's no real art to winning the French league with PSG. But ultimately, yeah, I, I don't want United to win enough so that I'm prepared to overlook what them being owned by any state really means for our football club and for my identity. And that's even before. I entertain what Cata represents. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't. United being United being good isn't important enough to me, so that I'm prepared to abandon everything that I care about as for that. Yeah, yeah. for that, and it's yeah, it's really that simple. And I, yeah, I, on in a different yeah. week, I'd be fucking rejoicing at this news. And yeah, here we are. I'm this is this is great news for for United, and I. Yeah, this is great news for United because it enables us to hopefully have enough, the money that is necessary to spend on the team and the ground and it gets rid of the Glazers eventually and it's something that I can just about square morally. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you can listeners uh, might have caught the conversation I did with Client Earth back in the summer to talk about like Ineos and greenwashing and all of that because there is this is not a public facing company. Ineos they they make petrochemical products and plastics and stuff like that, and, he, and not even the final product of the plastics, the chemicals that go into the plastics. This is a pretty high polluting company, and it's really weird that you'd have these kind of consumer facing high visibility sports brands and there's a big question around whether that's greenwashing or just that that Ratcliffe is interested and his partners two partners are interested in sport so they own Lons which is like pretty well analyzed not super successful but they're making changes Lausanne a club in I forget West Africa as well and and then they own the Ineos Grenadiers cycling team which is actually not doing that well this year big question about that they own quite a large chunk of Mercedes which was obviously extremely successful until F1 changed all the rules and now Red Bull are winning I'm probably simplifying what happens there I'm not really an F1 fan and and so you know it's a mixed bag of success isn't it in sports for for Ineos the, the question the question comes, I think, and it, uh, it's kind of alluded to by the next question. Bell says, how and why do you think Ratcliffe can bring success to our club? I understand your distaste for state ownership. Not going to try and convince you, but the club is still saddled with debt, desperate for new stadium facilities, and we're keeping the leeches. How is this progress? I'm crying. Well, let, let's leave the state part out of that. I, I, do, I do think there are real concerns still about the debt will be there. Until Ratcliffe owns 100% of it, he really has no mechanism for paying this off, I don't think, unless there is an arrangement in the contract that they can buy more equity for debt, for cash. Uh, I'd be surprised. A desperate for new stadium, there's not going to be, uh, that won't be a priority because the revenue upside for building a new stadium is not that high until you've built it. Look at Spurs, right? So you have to spend a billion and a half to get the revenue that comes with it so it's just not a it won't be a priority so yes training is different question there may be an arranged way of doing that so yeah for sure it's going to be operational for the next three to five years however long it takes to buy the glazers out yeah i i mean i think we as far as how do i know do i know about ratcliffe's ability to run a winning football club from a rap to turn Manchester United to a winning football club. No, but the same applies to Cancer and anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it the main thing you have to have is the right manager. That's the main thing. We don't. We may have one. We may have the right one. We may not. And then you have to have good people around him, obviously. And we don't know that I like winning the French league again with Paris Saint Germain is very different to winning the Premier League. So I don't know that Ratcliffe can do it, but I don't think we haven't been doing it with the Glazers. So that's, and there's no reason to, yeah, we, we just don't know. It's so it'd be hard to be worse, wouldn't it? Operationally than the Glazers. Yeah. What's good about this takeover is it gets the Glazers out. It saves us from being owned by repressive, repressive human rights abusing state. And then the rest is up in the air. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, we don't we don't know, and it'd be hard for it to be worse. It will be interesting whether Dave Brailsford and Paul Mitchell end up at the club. And Brailsford, I mean, like he was once successful with the British cycling team. I don't know I, how I, I, it translates to United. He's one of those people you know. As you get older, you know, you know, you don't like people, but remembering exactly 
all the grudges becomes, <laughs> becomes just a little bit harder. And I'm sure I've got about six, in my brain somewhere, six reasons why I think, why I think Brailsford's an idiot. I don't know. I mean, I'm not... Well, maybe maybe he can sort out our injury crisis with some secret pouches or something. I mean, you know? yes. I mean, there's also, yeah, he's not... Yeah. He's not someone I've ever thought, yeah, I'd be really delighted if he was, in, if he was high up at United. Right. Paul Mitchell, on the other hand, does have a very good reputation as a sporting director. I don't know where that leaves Murtagh, but like in the, what, how many windows has Murtagh had now? Three or four windows? It's not exactly worked out extremely impressively, has it? Given that he just seems to be signing off on whatever Eric Ten Hag wants. Yes, and I mean it depends. We we don't we don't know where they are with putting in a structure to prevent that from happening. I I, I th- so I reckon if you asked Murta, he would say it had to be that reason. Like it felt like last summer, it sort of it sort of did have to be that way. You've just got a new manager. Are you going to immediately tell a, a new manager who's been winning? You cut yes. who've been losing for a decade? Going to start overruling it with your groundbreaking talent idea i mean that seems unlikely and also and i think i wrote this at the time so i don't think i'm just making this up now to be wise after the event but it felt like united were in such a state at that point that the players that came were probably coming for ten half as much as for united and united way if united hadn't had ten half they'd had someone else for example would martinez definitely have gone to united and not to arsenal yeah i don't know yeah for example um, so United, Ten Hag was signing these players as well, I think. So I don't, it's, yeah, it would be, it was hard for United to not let him do what he wanted then. Yeah, I think yeah. the reason why, Mer- why these, why these people have to get gone is because of the absolute pig's ass they made of the Greenwood thing, where yeah. the question felt like it was only ever, what can we get away with? Not what is the right thing to do? Well, that's right. And, and it'll be interesting to see, I, I mean, I don't know that Ratcliffe will give a sod about that, honestly. No, I mean, he I might don't, not. I don't, but it doesn't strike me as some like highly moral man. But so it didn't, maybe he doesn't. No, but, but I don't, I'm not going to impugn his views on one thing because of his views on another. It just, just even forgetting that, it just, it did not reek of competence. Quite, quite correct. Yes, it whatever, did not. Whatever uh, you think yeah. about it, even if you think that they did the, yeah. if you think they did the right thing or the wrong thing, the way that they got yeah, yeah. to the end point was a joke. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, exactly. And and uh, I think I said with Wayne at the time that uh, it, it really smacked of an inexperienced CEO and like the handling of that uh, uh, and like the idea that you could in an institution as high profile as United, like sneak this through the back door in some way and no one would question what you were doing was was fairly ridiculous. Herbert Mark Hughes says, what will be the first major scandal of the Ratcliffe minority era? Will it be he appointed Dave Brailsford as performance director or some shit? Well, who was the... Uh, and Clive Woodward. Who was the British... Okay, that's Clive Woodward, exactly who I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, Brailsford is... He is involved in Lons in some way, isn't he? But I don't think he's actually, like, talent spotting and doing deals. Paul Mitchell will be the interesting one. Or what's his name? Who was this guy? The guy who was in Liverpool, Michael Edwards. Michael Edwards, who he set up an independent consultancy. So, but they may, they may like contract. And you can't like his run at Liverpool was, he was like probably the greatest run of transfers in the history of football. 
Right, picking every single one correctly, yeah. Is, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I genuinely, like, obviously, a couple of them were quite strong. Van Dyke and Allison obviously paid a lot of money for them, but Robertson, Henderson, Wijnaldum, Firmino, Salah, Salah, Mane, just one, I mean, Cater, okay, wasn't, didn't work out that well, but otherwise, that is, yeah, that is a very long run of success at the, yeah. I mean, for not a lot of success. <laughs> <laughs> well that's right uh one league title one champions league title but yes they they and and in fact like the even the recent signings that we were kind of laughing at and weren't sure now look pretty good don't they all those forward players they brought in are all kind of performing now and they've, uh, they've got they've got it's kind of worrying they've got a lot of firepower and i mean supposedly someone i've seen do great things yeah. and they seem to have got him working i guess i mean it will take a lot for them to win titles with what they've got but the problem is city you're winning them in the meantime so i mean whatever yeah i i, I don't know joey mangini says uh, do you think we'll win the title within the next years and also he says why do we suck next 10 years and also why do we suck they say it's really hard i mean because that re- like arsenal have shown that you can get much closer to city with just some basic competence right just, I mean, they spent quite a lot of money. They've spent a lot. He's, it. He's spent a lot yeah. of money, but he has spent. They spend the money well, so the players that it looked like they were signing for too much have actually proved proven to be worth what they paid for them. Yeah, and they've just they've just written off the losses like Pepe and and stuff like that. So, I mean, it has changed from the Cronky Dad era to the Cronky Junior era in that they've just opened the checkbook a lot more than than they would have done previously. So, but. The point is, it doesn't take that long to get close. Now, whether it's enough to beat Pep and City and their mega commercialization engine, which is very Abu Dhabi-centric, that's another question. So I don't know whether United can win the league title in the next 10 years, but the question really should be, is do we think City will win the league title every year for the next <laughs> 10 years? I, I don't. Right? Once, and then United should be close to it. It's, it's, it's where United basically have to be good when Guardiola leaves. You want... <laughs> it, yeah. As long as Guardiola stays at City, it is... It's, and I'm sure people said this when Fergie was at United, it is hard to see them not winning the league most seasons. It's You just have to hope that you're in a good position. I mean, who knows how long he's going to stay. But yeah, he just signed a new five year contract, didn't he? But yeah, hopefully he gets burned out at some point and goes. All right, Chris Edgingham, friend of the show, our resident scouser, says if you were managing this squad, would you be carrot or stick? And also, would you be tracksuit, suit or tie or pep jumper and jeans guy? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a bit to unpack there. Uh, Eric Ten Hag is very much stick, isn't he? Disciplinarian, but he's also, he's also, T-shirt with a suit guy and trainers. And cardigan. So, so I think, I, I wouldn't say he's a stick guy. I think cardigan. I think he tries to be fair. And if you if you fuck him about, then there'll be a problem. But otherwise, well, yeah. it feels like he tries to treat the players like adults. He's not. I don't, wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's a ma- like a, he expects things to be done properly. He's not. Yeah. I, I was asking around and someone told me that with Sancho, they don't expect an apology because he thinks he's in the right yeah, and obviously Eric Ten Hag thinks he's in the yeah, right. He's not Jock so. Wallace, but 
But yeah, um, I think that would I? But he's also been really clear, hasn't he? He's been clear about standards. Yeah, he keeps saying it standards. But w- in in real life, I mean, I'm I'm a tracksuit guy. I mean, I'm, I I generally I wear tracksuit bottoms and trainers or shorts and flip flops, like almost almost all the time. Um, so by 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 temperament, I'd be a tracksuit manager. But run it, but 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 Matt Busby and Fergie. Always look bang on in their club blazer, yeah, club suit. suit. Yeah, I I cannot remember the last time I wore a suit. I don't know even where my suits are. I don't like wearing them. I hate ties. But yeah. when I'm manager of United, I will probably I will probably wear the, the blazer and the tie. I guess. I, I do think Ten Hag picks a nice suit. They are nicely cut. He doesn't go for a baggy one. He, they 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 are well fitted, but they're they're. The two other things, they're slightly short, which is the modern thing. And he wears trainers with them and a T-shirt. I don't know. Don't know about that combo. But, yeah, that's that's a risk of me sounding a bit old, isn't it? Well, no, he's just... Is Ten Hag... Is Ten, Ten Hag's older than us, isn't he? Yeah, he's 53. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just checking. But he's that kind of that kind of Euro-tight style that, yeah. that, that he's into. Do we know anything about him? Beside the football, like, what does he like? Does he like? Does he like music? Does he like food? Does he like books? I, Do we know anything? I, about I get him the impression with him, he, he lives twenty four seven football. So, and then Fergie said something the other week, or maybe it was just a quote after Kathy died that she wouldn't want me at home all the time, but I now have breakfast with her, which kind of struck me as a bit sad. He dedicated his whole life to football and and United in particular, and. Even when after he retired, the most he could manage was breakfast with his wife. But with Ten Hag, I, I don't actually even know if he's married. It's yeah. never come up, or whether he does. And he is right. He is married, so, yeah. Right, but whether he does anything outside of football, he just strikes me as like because I that always excessive. felt like one of the biggest differences between Fergie and Wenger, and one of the reasons it went stale for Wenger and it never did for Fergie was because Wenger was upset. Although and Fergie hated it at the beginning. When Wenger was kind of presented as this vain cosmopolitan figure, do you remember? Yeah. Do you remember Fergie going, "Say he speaks five languages, I got some land." Yeah, he speaks so five I got languages. a kid who sits. Because yeah. he didn't like that. Because Fergie's a man of hobbies and, and interests, and he's a man of the world. And yeah, but what was really going on was that Fergie would go home and he'd be watching, the, getting pissed watching the History Channel or gambling on horses or whatever. He, and Wenger would be watching like the Spanish Fourth Division. It was well, like Fergie wasn't. And Fergie didn't go, you know what? I was watching Spartak Moscow against fucking Hansa Rostock the other day and Rostov or even yeah. Rostov, Hansa Rostov, East German, aren't they? Rostov the other day and that Nemanja Vidic is a player. Like he was yeah, busy yeah. doing his own <laughs> thing and he was always getting different experts in to do, to bring in fresh viewpoints. And Wenger, Wenger didn't do that. He did all, did the coaching himself, did the talent scouting himself really in some ways and. I think that was one of the reasons it went stale for Wenger, whereas Fergie was always moving on. All right, Stu Roll says, keen to hear what you guys think about the idea of Casemiro at centre-back, if his legs are truly gone and he was still in, he, if we're still injury-ravaged. I just don't know. Remember when everyone said, oh, Roy King could play at centre-back and then he got his fucking ass handed to him when he tried to do it. And I mean, it's just it's such a different position than, they always than used, central midfield. They always used to say about Robbo that when he slowed down, he'd be a sweeper. I guess, I mean, no one, like, no one's really playing with sweepers by then. 
Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's quite rare you see players change positions, I'd say. So he could probably do it in an emergency and he could probably do it well occasionally. Like you saw that Carrick did it all right a couple of times, but then there'd be a game, like yeah. put them away, I think it must have been once, where is it ten at nine ten where you do it and you get pig fucked. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean I guess I guess he probably could and it could be okay in some situations. I mean the question maybe that I would ask to build on that one is, well, are you picking Casemiro in the midfield now? Because well, it's a big question. If isn't you're having it? Bruno, performance levels. If you're having Bruno, who are your other two? And if yeah. Casemiro, you could have maybe you could have if you're having Casemiro, you, the other one's got to be Amrabat, really, or Manu when fit. So you could do it, but yeah. if you're wanting to play Mount in the midfield, you definitely can't do it. No, and I think that's really clear, isn't it? That Casemiro just can't cover enough ground to be the, the sole defensive player in there, whereas Amrabat, for his weaknesses, and there are some, has got some legs about him. <laughs> uh, and uh, He's got uh, which some Casemiro legs just does, does not appear. To, by the way, Casemiro got an ankle injury playing for training with Brazil, so he may well be out for some time. Oh, anyway. good. We'll, we'll find out. Glad yeah, to see it's still going. Uh, there'll still be people on the internet blaming that on Tenach. Having like big OFA with his training methods. I found, I find this quite yeah. weird. Like, fine, you can watch United play at the beginning of the season and say these dickheads aren't fit. But sometimes, like, it's not a big enough sample size of all these injuries that we're getting to say, well, there must be something wrong with the training. Maybe there is. True. But there, if you don't have, there are the, there are the stories that it's still very intense, which got me thinking, like, in the early years of Klopp, where they had a rash of injuries because he was, he was perhaps overtraining the players, but yeah, I'm I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, yeah, like I'm not saying. I'm not saying it isn't. I guess what I'm saying is that it's so impossible to speculate, even speculate with authority, that it's all barely worth talking about at all because the sample isn't statistically significant, and we don't know. But may, I mean, Alan McDonald says, uh, "Why can't we develop?" Defenders through the academy, especially centre backs. Tunes AB looked amazing for a bit, as did Mengi. Yeah, it's, it's a good point, actually. I mean, I, I do think one of the things is it does appear that central defenders mature a bit later than, and it still seems to be true. I don't know whether I have any data on that, that central defenders mature later and therefore it's harder to break in an elite club like United as a central and defender. Conversely, it's all the same side of the other, the, the other side of that same coin is it's easier to buy them when you know that they're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twins AB, did he go? I can't remember. I was going yeah, to say he didn't he's... find a club yet. He went to Ipswich, though, did he? Or who knows? I can't. I feel like I feel like he might have done that. Oh, I'm completely forgetting now. Whether he... Phil Jones hasn't found a club, by the way. Still, yeah, look it up. Yeah, yeah, very Mengi, good. Ipswich. Ipswich. There you go with Kieran McKenna, he... who are going gangbusters. By the way, Bradner Williams looks fucking amazing at Ipswich. He's, even, he's got a goal. <laughs> totally... He ran from the halfway line and scored the other we're, day. United are in illness. So... I, like we're cursed. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, we're cursed. But because Kieran, Kieran, we was one of the, Kieran McKenna was one of those people who was all these idiot coaches at fault for yeah, yeah. all the things that yeah. we were told were wrong with all these United. He had crap coaches. He had this. He had and. Yeah, uh, Carrick. Turns out he's not. <laughs> yeah. Barra won 4 0 at Sunderland last week. Yeah, Carrick's doing a good job as I well. I mean, they, they had a dodgy start to the season, Barra, but he lost Chubak from left, so that went to Ajax, so took away the goals. So I guess it then becomes yeah. a lot harder 
sensible underscore red says, are you with me in thinking that regardless of if we'd signed the ones that got away, Harlan, Bellingham, Alvarez, etc., we'd still be the same mess we are today. And similarly, if players such as Anthony Maguire and Sancho are at City, they would thrive. I mean, to be honest, I think you're probably spot on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're cursed. I mean, that's Fergie did some kind of deal where we would be good until he stopped and then never good again. And it was worth it. But yeah. here we are. I think that the one, uh, the one who yeah. you think would have been turned into something slightly different more than anyone had he gone, were he at City and not United is, who do you think I'm thinking of? Sanchez. I was at, I was Rashford. Anthony. Rashford. I think, yeah. I think yeah. the Guardiola would have turned Rashford into the very best version of what he could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, Mag- would we have ruined Maguire- Harland? Maguire- I think Harland's too good to fail anyway. Yeah, Maguire's but- still. I'm saying with Bellingham, but but yeah, Maguire's still shit. <laughs> Mind you, I think if we'd signed Bellingham at the time we were trying to sign him when he went to Dortmund, would he have got enough games in a crap side? Yes, because would that have ruined exactly, him? Would exactly that for that reason. No, exactly for that reason. Because it's like because there was no one in his position. Yeah, because yeah, what anyway. happens is that it, there would have been training, and it would have been obvious. It's like really. Rooney said Rooney said when he was fourteen he knew he was the best player at Everton. And he realised and then when he's sixteen they just can't keep him out of the team any longer. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. All right. Bano says visually Anana doesn't even look like a good keeper. When he does save a ball, when he attempts to block a low shot, the technique looks non existent. After a decade of the hair, Anana is hard to watch. Where does the club go from here? Do we give the number two a go? By new. I mean I just, it doesn't feel like the Anana that we've seen, though, at Inter and Ajax. He had a very good season at Inter. He didn't look like he was diving over the ball or being too slow to get it. He just seems to have been given the yips by this team that's not giving him enough protection. Could be proven wrong here because, of course, this kind of disastrous start for a footballer can ruin your confidence. But it feels like he's too good to fuck up from here, really. Uh, I don't quite agree with that. I agree with more or less everything else you said. Like, what we've seen from Onana is not what he usually does, because if it was, he wouldn't be at United. And Yeah. So the question isn't, is he really this shit? No. The question is, mentally, can, right. he, get, can he get it back to a point where can he, he and his defenders are confident in him? And I think he can from here, and the only... You could argue that take him out for a few weeks, maybe. I wouldn't. But the guy that we've got instead, who the fuck is he? No idea, yeah. Like, what's... Five million euros, it doesn't give you a lot of confidence. I, I, I don't know, he's off with the Turkish squad this week. I didn't watch so, Turkey's game. Right, so, but he's not, know. he's not done very much. So suddenly sticking in some bloke who won't have expected to be stuck in, who's, I mean, it just, that doesn't seem like a great option either. I'm afraid, or not afraid, like, us and Anana are stuck with each other for a bit. And I feel like he needs, yeah, we need to stick with him and hope that it comes back. I don't think we've got an alternative, but even if we did have one, it would still feel like that would be the right thing to do because this isn't, yeah, he's a better keeper than this. I don't know if he's good enough for us, but yeah, he's better than this. All right. I think that's it for the mailbag pod. Do we want to talk about horrendous geopolitical things? I mean, one of the reasons why you said it was a really bad week for you is obviously what happened in Israel last Saturday, so just over a week now. Just the absolute worst of humanity 
happening there and then what looks to be a fucking catastrophic invasion that's going to leave a lot of people, families destroyed and a population dispersed. Yes. A week on, how are you feeling? I, okay, so I think I'm going to try and keep this relatively personal because obviously yeah, yeah. there's a lot of issues and I, I, I'm, I'm Jewish. I feel connected to Israel and I'm going to explain a little bit about that yeah. in a minute, I think. But that's not to say I am denying Palestinian claims for statehood at all, that I want Israel shooting innocent Palestinians now. I don't. So. I've been saying for ages that this is Israel's biggest crisis since the Yom Kippur War in 1973, when they're attacked on Jewish holiday, surprised, and almost lost that war. And I was saying that just because of the attempt to steal democracy by corrupt government, who were in the name of that, and in this vicious cycle of victimizing Palestinians, and that became becoming part of the political system, where you've got a leader who is who is who wants who the courts want for corruption, who's trying to defang the courts to save his ass from jail. And in doing that, he's building coalitions with far-right parties in order to keep himself out of jail. And is focused on that. So you have that going on and that crisis of democracy and also ongoing crisis of how Israel's treating Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and also in Israel. You've got mm. that going on. So I felt like this was already the biggest crisis. And then what happened last weekend is one of those things, I guess, when it happens, and the thing's so bizarre to compare this even to football, but the thing I thought about at the time was it, it's like that Aguero moment where you're seeing something so dreadful that in real time that where well, I was, yes, I mean, I was not seeing it because I was a Sunderland, but you know, where you think this isn't, this is this, this is a, not an eternal moment where this isn't just this terrible thing that's happened right now, but this is something that is going to last for all time. And the way that I, I'm coming at this from is that the, the phrase, the term Zionist is something that gets used a lot, particularly on the internet, usually as some kind yeah. of insult or to impute some kind of lack of humanity. And it certainly can be used in that connection. So just for me, the term Zionist really just means someone who thinks the state of Israel should exist, wants the state of Israel to exist. I want the state of Israel to exist. So the reason I want Israel to exist is because I want somewhere, I want somewhere to run to. It's not, it's not a religious thing. I don't think that Israel has any more right, that the Jews have any more right to Israel than Palestinians do because it says in the Torah that I'm giving you Israel. I can't believe I have to say that, but yeah, yeah. Has to, but yeah. there are, there are people who think to the contrary and but just to say that of myself, so when I, if you say, oh, you're a Zionist, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do, I do want Israel to exist. Beyond that, everything about what Israel constitutes is up for grabs. I don't want an ethno state where Jews have more rights than people in it who aren't Jews, whoever they are. But so to explain, I guess, my connection to Israel. There's, there's a religious connection. And I don't say this in terms of, I think that God gave the, the Jewish people Israel. I say that in terms of when Jews pray, we, we sing, we talk a lot about returning to Zion, returning to Israel. And that seeps into the culture. And if you're raised with those prayers that you say every day, every week, whatever, however, however often you say them, when you eat three times a day, when you eat all that, all that 
it seeps into your being and it's kind of building a relationship with Israel. Now, don't again say this because I think it gives us or me or anyone any ownership over Israel, but I say it because I'm trying to explain the depth of the connection to Israel, that it starts as this thing when you're a kid that you talk about and is built into this ideal and idealized version of the world and how the world's going to be and how you would like the world to be that that is about about israel and the jews obviously were physically in israel until they were removed from israel first by the babylonians and then the romans and since that point there's always been this desire to return to israel then there's a cultural connection to israel too that when when I was growing up, you have like the religious aspect of the identity, and then you have the, I guess the the cultural aspect. And the cultural aspect, the two things that were really on offer were the Holocaust and Israel. And for me, definitely not defining this massive part of my identity according to industrial mass murder of all of us. So that kind of leaves Israel mm. and. Not all of us, obviously, but I and lots of people like me, we get taught Hebrew as kids. We talk to our mates sometimes in Hebrew. We have slang in Hebrew. We spend time in Israel growing up. Off you go. I went, I went to Israel for a month after my GCSEs. Loads of Jewish kids do that. I went, I spent my gap year, spent a year in Israel. I got one, of my, I got married in Israel. My best man lives in Israel. A lot of my various others of my best mates live in Israel. So I've been to Israel about 20, 30 times in my life. I know a lot went to school with those of Israelis. And so all those things make it feel that like when you go to Israel, you feel like it's home. I feel more at home in Israel than I do in the UK. And so all those cultural aspects that are all intertwined with each other mean that we have as Anglo Jews, we have this connection to Israel. And then there's like just what's actually going on in Israel. We can run there if we have to. And in our living memory, our stories from people who had to and couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I guess it's our consolation prize for the Holocaust, if you like. Well, here's this. And the inherent contradiction of Israel, obviously, is what had to happen for Israel to be created in the way that Palestinians were chased out of their homes, which I mean, I, I can't, I can't defend that, but the inherent contradiction, but do I want somewhere to run when things get, when things get hot? Yes. And then hmm. that's, that's the inherent contradiction of, of Israel for us. But aside from that, because I, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying not to get into like claims over, over shit, but just trying to explain the connection that we feel. It's that. Yeah. yeah. It's that also because Jews are few, when things happen, we all know people in Israel. People who are in bomb shelters, people who are, whose kids are in the army, whose nephews are in the army, people, someone I know, like someone I know, his cousins were, felt something was wrong on that day. They texted someone they knew who was in the secret service who said, you guys have got to run. Told his parents they had to run. Parents said, now nah, we can't be bothered. We'll get to it later. Argument ensues. They say, well, if you don't run, I won't say m- memorial prayers for you. And that was the thing that forced them to run. They run, everyone else in the village dead. Like we know right. people, we all know people with those stories. So it's not about something that's happening over there that this cause that we believe in. It's something that affects 
our lives on a daily basis because it affects the people that we're close to. And that's the case for, for almost everyone. So that, and then when you factor into that, the trauma passes in DNA and a massive chunk of jury, Anglo jury, we all have this, we all have this from the Holocaust. Jews running away. We're, that's not meant to happen anymore. And the reason yeah. that's not meant to happen anymore is Israel. And we're, I, and I say this and I understand and don't, don't think that I do not. So I'm going to say it's really, I understand that we're, that Israel is oppressing Palestinians and the Palestinians need to resist. I'm not, I'm not, it's not, this isn't about the resistance. I think it's the fact what, what's shocking about this is the, the quantity of people who are dead, the alacrity with which it was done, the people who it is, because yeah. here's the thing, right? What would have happened if the Israeli army weren't there? The only thing that stopped Hamas from killing everyone yeah, is the fact that yeah. the army stopped them. That's not them going in, doing an operation, some people that they didn't want to kill or didn't care about not killing, or a few people that they killed for fun. That's not that. That's, we're trying to kill all of you, every single, every single one of you. And that's the, the same for those of us who, who aren't in Israel. And it's fucking 2023. I thought we heard Jude Bellingham, Jude Bellingham Birmingham shirt, the word pogrom. But in 2023 to be using the word yeah. pogrom, are you fucking kidding me? And yeah, yeah. I, and the thing that I guess has been, I mean, it, I haven't, I can't say that I've really processed this as kids, our parents. Well, is this one's an anti Semite? That one's an anti Semite. My parents' generation, something we took the piss out of, of out of my, my, my mates, out of our parents' generation who still felt like more proximate to the Holocaust than we did, even though it was proximate mm. to us as our grandparents. And it's just, I guess, a reminder as a Jew that your place in the world is fucking precarious. And then you see the way that people react subsequently. And so for people in, let's, let's just say for people in the UK for now, Palestine is a cause. It's not, it's not proximate to you. It's a cause. And I don't have a problem with anyone supporting the Palestinian cause. What is, can be hard to take is when you see, say, Pete, the Twitter accounts that particularly on the left in this one, and I'm not courting the right wing. I don't want right wing people telling Israel to go and do whatever it wants in Gaza. I don't want that. I want the opposite of that. But what I find painful on the left is people who are supposed to believe in justice. If you look at the like at Twitter accounts and like, for example, there'll be loads of retweets and tweets about Palestinian pain. And I'm, I'm retweeting that stuff myself. I'm, I'm hurting about that stuff myself, but mm. nothing about what's happened, what's happened in Israel that the biggest pogrom since the Holocaust just, just happened. Yeah. And yeah. it feels. Like we, we live, we live amongst you and we have these, this connection to Israel. So it feels, it feels like we're under attack because it's an attack. It's not just an attack against Israel. It's attack again. It's an attack against Jews. They're trying to kill everyone. It's not, it's not, it's not a strategic thing. And, mm. and so when, when you feel like that, then when there's, it feels like the, the tragedy that happened in Israel is not really. Not really something that people are people are bothered about. Almost like 
when Israel, through Israel's behavior, you deserved that. And again, like, I'm not defending Israel's behavior, but then why would it be that Israel's behavior, Israel's government represents the people of Israel and the Jews of the world. Hamas doesn't represent Palestinians. Hamas doesn't represent Palestinians. We, I don't look at it like that. But then yeah. I'm not represented by Benjamin Netanyahu, and neither are the people. Yeah. Neither are the people that that died that lived in Israel. That over a thousand people, babies, children, old people, just everyone. And yeah, J- just two two things. I thought they, they just came to mind. One was something Naomi Klein said, the writer. Like moral consistency does not equal moral equivalence. Right? We should not. We can we can weep for the dead Israelis as much as we can weep for the dead Palestinians in this. Yeah, that doesn't mean these two things are the same thing. Um, but we can just be and the lack of fucking humanity. Like when you hear a child has been killed, your first reaction should not be, "Oh, what side were they on?" Right? It's and it's the dead people. Yeah, and it's it's quite. I guess it's it's quite isolating. That so I'll give you another example. So. I am not offended by the slogan "Free Palestine." I believe in the Free Palestine, but when the day after a massacre of Jews, you see Free Palestine graffitied on a bridge by like a section of Golders Green Road that has Jewish shops in it, that that feels like something that's meant to make you feel uncomfortable. And I'm not opposed to being made to feel uncomfortable by politics because feeling mm-hmm. uncomfortable is quite good if you're in a position to feel uncomfortable then you're doing all right there are people that are suffering we're mourning we're like we're more when we're mourning our when we're mourning our dead but the next day after just this horrendous thing that that is done in the name of free palestine and again i'm not conflating hamas with people who believe in free palestine don't believe in annihilating jews when you see free palestine graffitied there at that point that that's like well that massacre was done by people that think they were doing it in the name of Free Palestine. So, what does that what, what does that mean? Why do you want these people to see this on this day? And again, I, I, I want Palestine to be free. It, it's it's not about what Free Palestine is or means. It's about why would someone write it there at that point? And I'm on that day, yeah. and I'm meant to believe that's something that I shouldn't find unsettling. No. And I feel like, yeah, it's the idea, yeah, a small community losing that number of people in that manner on that day is it, it, it's hard to comprehend. It's also hard to understand how it moves on from here. But we know it's going to move on from here because yeah. it fucking is. And, yeah, yeah. and it's it moving in is, a dreadful yeah. direction. Where And in the UK, there's going to be... And this is the other thing about the lack of humanity, both the the amount of anti-Semitism and the amount of Islamophobia and and violent incidents is going to increase. And, has increased. That know, anti-Semitism it, is ma- has increased. Has, has, anti-Semitism has, massi- yeah. has massively increased. And and it, it's again that thing that makes you realise why 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 Israel has has to exist. It's that vicious circle of, of that. And the idea that so the things that Israel, no other country in the world really has to argue for its existence. But there's Pal- like Palestine obviously does because Israel is stopping it from, but, but Israel. And 
no other country, despite how it came into being, generally has to contend with those questions. And what I'm trying to say is these things that you might say, well, you're paranoid, but we're, I feel like if we are, and I think you develop quite a good nose for knowing what isn't, isn't done with ill intention, but we're paranoid with good reason. Hmm. There are people that, that want us not to be here and, and we just saw it and some people aren't that bothered. Yeah, it's, it's deeply unsettling. All right. In true sort of morning show fashion. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> we'll be back. Thanks, Dan, for giving us a, like, a personal insight into that. I do think that's important. And I, I, obviously, I, I know your politics because we've talked about it. And uh, you, you shouldn't have to feel like you need to like repeatedly both sides it, which I know you felt like it because you don't. But, you, you want to make your position really clear. Both si- and, it is a both you know, sides. Yeah, it's, a, it's a both sides issue. But there are some things yeah. you can't both sides. And the the massacre that we saw that we saw is, is what it yeah. is, is one of them. And what Israel does in retaliation that's also going to be wrong isn't going to make that due punishment or anything other than a pogrom yeah. in 2023. I mean, c- come on, man. Yeah. A pogrom in 2023 is that seems, seems wrong. Catch you all next week. All right.